Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Sound Prince for the week of January 10, 2016. This past Friday, 10-time Bluegrass Fiddler of the Year, Michael Cleveland, and his band, Flamekeeper, held a public rehearsal at the Letter Song Calligraphy Studio in the Clifton area, only a few short blocks from the United Crescent Hill Ministries Community Center, where GLCB holds its roundabouts. After dinner at the roundabout, 18 of us went to the show, and the music was fantastic. Everyone had a great time, and the move from UCHM to the studio and back to meet paratransit return rides went very smoothly. Thanks to Patty Cox, Kathy Nelson, Elizabeth Strickland, and Joseph Scoggins for all the help with transportation. ACB and Denny's announced on January 6 that Denny's has introduced newly enhanced website and mobile application upgraded platforms and that they offer enhanced accessibility and functionality for all users. Denny's Corporation franchisor and operator of one of America's largest franchised full-service restaurant chains, announced its newly upgraded website and mobile application offering an enhanced user experience and greater accessibility for all consumers. Denny's website and mobile application have been redesigned to meet new guidelines issued by the Web Accessibility Initiative, WAI, of the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, making each platform available to and usable by all patrons, including those with disabilities. Quote, we congratulate Denny's on upgrading its mobile app and website and making them accessible to all customers, said Kim Charlson, president of the American Council of the Blind. Our members value Denny's pricing, food, and service and applaud the company on recognizing the diversity of its customer base. Denny's worked with ACB and consumers with visual disabilities to gain functionality feedback that would impact the improved website and mobile application. Using critical user responses, Denny's was able to tailor the functions of each platform to ensure they are readily accessible and usable without assistance. Quote, the recent updates to our website and mobile application are designed to offer enhanced functionality so that all of our guests can have access to Denny's wherever they are, said Eric Jensen, Senior Director, Brand Engagement at Denny's. Both of these platforms are designed to enable us to engage with our consumers even when they're not in our restaurants. So it was crucial that this applied to all users, whatever their needs or requirements may be. Lisa Irving, a longtime Denny's patron in Southern California, was involved in the effort. Quote, I appreciate improvements the company has made to its website and mobile app, says Irving. As a result of Denny's upgrades, I am now able to read the menu without assistance and to make healthy choices, something I really value. The guidelines issued by the WAI are designed to keep the aesthetic nature of the content intact while ensuring that the information is readily accessible to persons with visual and other disabilities. 
The implemented guidelines are of particular benefit to visually impaired computer and mobile app users who rely on screen reader voice output or magnification technology and who, like others, rely on a keyboard instead of a mouse for computer navigation. On January 5th, Eric Bridges, the new Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind, announced that ACB has appointed Anthony Tony Stevens as our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Tony brings a wealth of experience advocating on issues encompassing people who are blind or visually impaired. Most recently, he managed public policy and advocacy at National Industries for the Blind, representing NIB on Capitol Hill, working with national disability coalitions, and leading NIB's Advocates for Leadership and Employment program. Eric states that he had the great fortune to work closely with Tony over the past five years and firmly believes that he possesses the passion and skill to effectively represent ACB's interests on Capitol Hill, the executive branch, and beyond. His work on social justice campaigns spans more than two decades, working on some of the most complex issues in the public interest sector, such as health care, immigration, and poverty reform. A former Jesuit, Tony has played an integral role in bridging coalitions between secular and faith-based organizations and previously worked for the Opportunity Agenda, a New York-based communications think tank focusing on media, mainstream culture, and domestic human rights causes. Legally blind since birth, Tony lost the remainder of his sight at age 15 due to acute angle closure glaucoma. He served on multiple boards representing people with disabilities and is a member of ACB of Maryland. Tony holds an MA in Mass Communication and a BA in Journalism from the University of Georgia, and he received a Certificate in Business Management from George Mason University. He resides in College Park, Maryland with his wife, Lauren, two young sons, Oliver and Elliot, and his guide dog, Palmer. Tony's first day in the national office will be Monday, January 11. On page two this week, we bring you the text of an interesting article about Uber and some tips on how riders, especially those with guide dogs, can make the Uber transportation experience smoother and better for all. Mike Hudson, director of the museum at the American Printing House for the Blind, visits with us on page three and shares a very unusual and exciting project currently underway at the American Printing House for the Blind. This project has to do with the acquisition of an extremely rare historical document related to Louis Braille. And Mike tells us how all of us, no matter where or who we are, can get involved and support this project. For many years, science fiction writers have dreamed of a day when people would be able to fly around town in some type of individual transportation device. Throughout our society today are numerous experiences and examples of science fiction come true. A vehicle that will fly a single person from place to place was unveiled at the recent Consumer Electronics Show 
And whether it comes to market or not, we thought you would enjoy joining us on page four as we dream of a new way to quickly and easily get around town. And on page five is the Soundprints calendar. Page two. Once upon a time, in many parts of the country, there were two public transportation options for blind and visually impaired people, taxis and fixed route buses. Then, around 1990, when the ADA became law, paratransit options began to appear. And we all loved to complain. Fixed route buses were late. Taxis didn't show up or didn't want to transport our guide dogs. Paratransit was way too early, way too late, or made us ride around town for seemingly hours on end. Then along came Uber and Lyft, new transportation options. There has been much discussion about the positive and not so positive aspects of these new companies over the past two years. The following article was posted by Mike May on December 23 and forwarded to the ACBL email list by Peter Altschul this past week. The information in this article may not apply to Uber in all of its service areas since the company operates in over 50 countries and 350 cities worldwide. But these observations and tips seem to be fairly universal, at least in the United States. The email reads as follows. Thoughts and Tips on Using Uber with a Guide Dog by Mike May I believe that rideshare services, and Uber in particular, are the best independent tool for blind people invented this century. As with any such tool, especially a disruptive one, there is misinformation and there is room for improvement. The Uber phone app is quite accessible. I give them beta feedback and know that they work quickly to fix any small problems that arise as the result of the app evolving regularly. There are plenty of things to improve, but the app is accessible and easy to use, as you will see from my frequent use below. Here is my perspective on Uber services as a frequent traveler and guide dog user. My wife also uses a guide dog from the Seeing Eye, and we are often together with two dogs in an Uber. We have faced only three rejections in Uber in our over 700 combined Uber rides. Compare this with our taxi experience, where many won't even stop when they see a dog, and others outright refuse to let the dog in the taxi. In my experience in taxis, I faced 20 to 40 percent rejection as opposed to less than 1% with Uber. I know a few guide dog users report much higher rejection with Uber and Lyft, and others who have never had a problem. Uber has a two-strike send you are out policy. The driver gets one warning, and if they reject a service dog a second time, they are removed from the Uber platform. It is easy to report an infraction from within the app or by emailing support at uber.com or by replying to the email receipt. In the few times I have had a rejection, Uber support was emailing and calling me within a few hours. If there was a cancellation charge, it was quickly refunded. My understanding is that all drivers receive an email when they sign up telling them about the service dog policy as well as reminders over time.
Of course, not all drivers read and understand these emails, so it is inevitable that a few will be uninformed. Uber staff attended several blindness conferences in the past year to hear directly from blind riders and to exchange information about the service, including finding ways to make it better. Even 1% rejection is not fun for the person who has to face the inconvenience and humiliation of the experience, but I like these odds way better than the random taxi, which might reject my dog and which can be slow in arriving and risky to pay. There are two types of rejection. Some drivers believe that they don't have to take a dog in their private car. They might claim that they or their family has an allergy. They might be genuinely afraid of dogs. They may have not read the email or Uber policy saying that these are not reasons to deny a service dog in their vehicle. I have a few strategies to reduce the likelihood of dog rejection with Uber or Lyft. 1. Check to see if Uber Access is one of the app options. If so, choose the Assist option from the submenu and then check the ETA. If the arrival time is reasonable, use Assist as these are top drivers who have had to watch a training video about riders with disabilities. Be aware if you choose Uber Pool that this is a shared ride and your dog will count for one of the available spots in the carpool. I tend to avoid pool in favor of Uber X. 2. When the Uber ETA is about 2 minutes, then use the contact driver option to text the following message. Quote, I am blind and have a licensed guide dog. Please call out my name when you see me. I do not phone the driver because they may not hear or understand the difference between a dog and a guide dog. If the message is in writing, they have more time to think about it and you are on record giving them the information. They can't claim they didn't understand. I write the text ahead of time and copy it into the iPhone clipboard so it is easy to paste into the contact driver text message box. I send the text when the driver is only a few minutes away so they will consider the time and money they will lose if they cancel the ride. 3. I carry a laminated card with the word Uber in large letters to hold up in situations where it might be hard to find me like a grocery store parking lot. 4. I make sure and hold the harness when the driver is approaching so they don't think it is a pet dog. It is still sometimes necessary to say to the driver, I am blind, I cannot see, this is my trained guide dog who is very calm and clean. 4. I believe it is useful to keep the dog on a very short leash when getting in the car so they don't sniff the driver or get on the seat. Some drivers are terrified of dogs and we can't change that in 30 seconds. If the dog is quiet and on the floor of the car, the driver can relax and proceed with the ride. Having the dog on the floor also reduces the dog hair the driver will have to deal with. Grooming the dog before a trip is a good idea. Some drivers may have a sheet or towel to put on the seat or floor. I carry a small sticky roller to pick up the hair. Just offering to use this makes the driver feel that I am being considerate.
we have to remember that they rate us the same as we rate them. 6. Although Uber does not have an option for a tip in the app, I will tip in cash if the driver has to deal with excess dog hair or wet paw prints because of rainy weather. 7. Many drivers are afraid of dogs and may express reluctance when you open the door of their car. I get the dog on the floor quickly so the driver can't change their mind, and I make sure my dog doesn't sniff them. Once we are rolling, I make casual conversation, which may include information about the dog's training, flying on airplanes, and so forth. I make sure the dog stays put during the ride. I had a driver asked to take a selfie with my dog because, he said, his wife wouldn't believe that he had a big German Shepherd six inches behind his head for 30 minutes. My goal by the end of the ride is to convert these concerned drivers into amazed believers. I think of ourselves as ambassadors. I rate almost all drivers five stars, but I do add comments both constructive and glowing as appropriate. Those comments are passed along to the driver anonymously. I have even gone to the trouble of filling out the form to recommend a driver for the Uber Six Star Award for service above and beyond the call of duty. Most drivers are courteous and professional, are on time, and have nice vehicles. Many do go above and beyond. We have dealt with two family emergencies using multiple Ubers to shuttle us and the kids to the hospital and home. We used Uber eight times to facilitate our recent trip to Disneyland. As two blind parents, we use Uber all the time to shuttle our kids to and from activities. I have had as many as five business meetings in Silicon Valley in a day made possible by timely Uber transportation. I have used Uber in eight countries and dozens of cities so far. A couple drivers have even become friends. We are willing to put up with the very occasional Uber issue because of their 99% excellence. It is because of this service that I am willing to do what I can to suggest improvements in the app, to share my experience with other blind riders, and to recommend changes that will better educate drivers. Page three. Mike Hudson is the director of the museum at the American Printing House for the Blind, and they are always coming up with new and interesting things that are just an amazing part of their collection. And this time he's going to be talking to us about something they would like to acquire. So, Mike, we're glad you're with us on Soundprints today. I'm glad to be here, Carla. Mike, you called me the other day and was talking about acquiring a very, very rare uh, item for the museum and about the need to raise some funds to get this item. So tell us about this exciting piece of news and hopefully new acquisition for the museum. Sure. Um, this is what I think of as the holy grail of uh, blindness artifacts. Um, so bear with me, okay, because I'm going to tell the story. Okay. So um, in 1829, a young man, 20 years old, 
in Paris, France, published a book called, uh, well, the, the English translation is Method for Writing Words, Music, and Plain Song in Dots. So obviously I'm talking about Louis Braille, and this is the first publication of his system, 1829. Um, the book is uh, just some 30-some pages long. Um, it was embossed in raised letters, and uh, it wasn't even until about page 18 or 19 that he introduces his code. Oh, my. Uh, but it is the first publication of the Braille system. Okay. So, as you may know, um, Braille system was not immediately adopted, even at his own school, where he was teaching at there in Paris, France. Right. Um, and in the 1840s, there was a, a leadership uh, shakeup at the school, um, and uh, Braille's, uh, I guess you might say, his mentor, Pinier, was fired, and uh, Pinier's deputy, Dufault, was promoted in, to be the director of the school, and he had developed his own raised letter code, and so he had all the other raised letter books and Braille books at the school destroyed. Oh, my. Yes. Um, incredible today to think about it. But um, so uh, early Braille books from that period are extremely rare. We only know of six copies of this book. The mm. Preside is what I call it because it's, that's how it, it starts in French. Uh, Preside is French for method. But um, uh, only six copies exist anywhere in the world, two in Belgium, two in France, and two here in the United States. And so this copy um, is owned by a bookseller in New York and he has offered it to the American Printing House for the Blind for $95,000. So we started, which sounds like, which is an incredible amount of money in, in our world. Uh, in an art museum, you know, $95,000 is really not, really kind of a drop in the bucket for, for, for art. But in, in the history world, that's, that's a lot of money for an object. Um, so we have we have a, we we were given a uh, three months basically to raise that money and and so we're in the last month we've got until January 31st to finish raising the money and we've gotten some big donations from some foundations here in Louisville and a lot of support nationally um, but we're still kind of finishing up our fundraising and and we need the support of the blind community. How far along are you on this fundraising journey? Um, you know. Yeah, you and, know, I don't know to mm -hmm. tell you the truth. Um, I'd have to check with our development department. Mm -hmm. um, I know that um, we've gotten two large gifts of $20,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the heavy lifting has already been done. Mm -hmm. um, but we still have some ways to go. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. any support that anybody out there, $5, $10, it doesn't matter. Um, what we hope to be able to say when we get to the end of January is that we are going to be the only museum in the world that has a copy of the Preside that's going to be on public display. Mm -hmm. None of the other books are actually out there. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at this book, Carla, um, it's, it's really interesting because it's so experimental still. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the Braille code that Louis publishes in 1829 is still the same exact code that we use today. Hmm. His A, his B, his C, his W, they're, they're still the same uh, pattern that we use today. Hmm. 
But at the same time, he was experimenting. So instead of just using dots, he also used dashes. Oh. Um, and uh, when he re when he republishes uh, the second edition in 1837, he he's done away with the dash. Mm-hmm. Um, do you read Braille music by any chance? Yes. Okay, so you know that uh, Braille music today, uh, it, the, the kind of the brilliance of it is that you use one symbol and it stands for both the duration and the pitch, right? Yes. But in his original 1829 code, he used two symbols for each note. One symbol for the duration, one symbol for the pitch. So you would have a symbol for D and then a symbol for a quarter note. That's right. That's right. Oh, wow. By 1837, when he, when he, you know, he continued to experiment and, and, and work with it, and of course he was a great musician himself, mm-hmm. he had changed that to the system that we use today, where one symbol stands for both pitch and duration and makes it a lot easier to read braille music in fact you can read braille music uh just about as fast or faster than a than a sighted musician can read uh printed music because of that that advantage that it has so it's very interesting to look at the original code to see where how his mind was kind of wrapped around these problems of making a code that was both easy to read and that you could write and of course, that was the big advantage to Braille over every other system that had come before it. Uh, raised letters were great uh, in that they proved you could teach someone who was blind to read, but they really weren't that great in terms of how easy they were to read or write. Braille system is both easy to read and easy to write. And you can see that in this very experimental book. Now, here's another cool thing about the book that, um, that we're, we're just starting to discover. When uh, Valentin Awi uh, published his first book in raised letters in 1786, he bound it normally, which means that at the spine it was very tight, just like a standard print book would have been bound, which proved to be a really bad idea for an embossed book because the book was bound so tightly that it crushed the raised letters. So if you look at any copies, and you can, we've got a copy on display here at the museum, if you look at any of those copies, you'll see that the relief is almost completely flattened out. You can hardly feel the raised letters. So by the time Braille publishes his book, his book in 1829, they, they already knew that. And so he put paper spacers in between the various uh, sections of the book so it would space the, the, the pages out and so the weight of the book itself wouldn't crush the raised letters. Those spacers in this book, the Presidi from 1829, are made out of pages from other tactile books. Oh, my goodness. So bound up into the spine of this book, and you can clearly see it, are these folded pieces of paper that came from other tactile books. And so we've got, not only do we have um, the Presidi, but kind of bound into it are pages from other very, very early tactile books. And so we're looking forward to, as we do our research, uh, figuring out what books that those spacers came from. Did th- were they just waste pages from the Presidi itself, or were they from other tactile books? We don't know that yet, but it's, mm-hmm. it's exciting to look at. Mm-hmm. So if, if what you need is in order to attract um, other large contributors uh-huh. is what 
people often need in 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 these kinds of fundraising efforts, and that is to demonstrate that there is support from within the community, whether it be um, from uh, a you know someone with a a, a sizable donation, or a, as you said, a very small donation. Everybody counts. Is that, that is exactly right, and yeah. it also demonstrates to your larger donors that that people care. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, uh, you know, and also you you can't discount the fact that a hundred pennies is a hundred pennies, right? Yes. Yeah, you put a hundred pennies together, and now you've got a dollar. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are uh, we are really. Uh, I hope you can hear in my voice how excited I am about this book. It is it is really the most significant. Uh, artifact that I've had in my hands in the 10 years I've been working here at the museum. It is uh, just one of the most incredible uh, inventions that's ever been developed uh, in terms of literacy for folks who are blind or visually impaired. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be a tremendous thing for APH to have one of those six books in its collection and be able to visit there and I wouldn't expect that it would be just out for anyone to, you know, to see any time. But, I mean, it would have to be protected in some way, and I'm sure it would be. But Well, one thing we hope to be able to do is uh, one of the ways that we put tactile graphics into textbooks today is that we'll, we, um, the graphic is designed, and then it's printed out on a large format printer called a Roland UV printer. And what it does is it goes over and over again and prints with this special ink that builds it up into the relief you need to be able to look at the tactile graphic with your fingers, right? Mm -hmm. So we're hoping to be able to scan the pages from this book and then uh, print it out on the Roland UV printer Mm -hmm. to make a graphic so that you can actually explore the pages by touch. Right. And and so that would be, it it would be a, um, uh, almost a copy. Yeah, a reproduction. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of, of the book, and yeah. would now be we'll able to experiment with that to see how yeah. well it works out. But right. I'm I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to be able to do something that will at least let you feel the fact that they were basically they had uh, created this uh, an entire typeset in mm-hmm. raised letters and then the braille dots, and then they pressed them into wet paper, and you can clearly feel the outlines of the individual blocks. They were still experimenting with the, the whole embossing process and figuring out how to make embossed books. And this book, it even, you know, both in intellectual sense and in a technical sense, is this, is this uh, experimental masterpiece. You know, that had to take a long time to produce. Yes, and very, very labor-intensive, very time-consuming. And, and yeah. just thinking of your story of you know the 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 person coming along and destroying all of those books i mean it, it's that, that's almost beyond it, it's hard to think of somebody doing that and and throwing out getting rid of things that took that long and were that intense to produce it's it just is amazing, isn't overwhelming. It? Yes, yeah. especially when there were so few things for blind people to read anyway. And considering that that was then a person who was in charge of a school for blind people. Well, so, here, you know, th- th- that's a good that's a good question 
But think about this. Most of the schools for the blind and most of the tactile codes written for folks who were blind had all been developed by people who were sighted. Right. Okay? That's correct. Braille, for the first time in the history of, 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 of literacy for folks that were blind, it was invented by someone who was blind. Yes. Himself. Yes. And the system was idealized to be used by blind people for themselves. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's pretty cool don't you think yes but maybe some other people there at the time didn't think that was so cool obviously they didn't well you know but it was that's because it was the it was the teachers who were in charge of the school yes right? yeah but you know braille kind of represents the first generation of <laughs> you know after he after he graduated uh, right. he became a teacher himself there at the school right and so he kind of represents this first generation of uh, uh, graduates yeah. who 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 move in and become teachers and leaders. These these upstarts that had the audacity <laughs> <laughs> to think that they could outdo those sighted people. That's right. <laughs> That's know? right. That's right. How dare they do such a but thing? His code was so perfect. Yeah. And it's logical. It's just such a logical, wonderful uh, creation that. Um, that we still use it today. And you know, there was great debate, uh, Carla, throughout the 19th century here in the United States over what code to use. Oh, I know, the War of and the there Dots and all that good codes, stuff. And we talk about that, the War of the right. Dots. Right. But in the end, the code they come back to yeah. is Louis' original code. Right, for, right. For, for, uh, you know, it's the first dot code, and it turns out to be the best dot code. And that's that's a pretty rare idea there, too. And this um, is interesting that we're having this discussion just as we're changing to... UEB, but it's still based on the same basic Braille code. It is. There's Even you know, though we're a, changing some of the contractions in sure. it and some of the symbols that are needed today that probably weren't even used then in many cases or that weren't used um, in the same format that they're right. used today. Yeah. Still. But the alphabet is the same. Right. Punctuation marks are the same. That's right. Louis hadn't even invented contractions in 1829. No, no. Oh, no. Absolutely yeah. not. And and so as a result, um, the, the system is still that system. And at, we're recording this on January 6th. And on January 4, UEB went into effect. But it's still basically the same Braille system. That we're talking about and in you this know book. That, I know you know this, but January 4th was his birthday. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And January 6th was actually the day he died. Did you know that? Oh, no. I so didn't know that. today is actually the 150, no, is that right? Uh, 2009, no, a 207th um, anniversary of his death. Yes. He died yeah. in 1852 of tuberculosis. Wow. wow. Before his system was even, had even been adopted at his own school. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. So let's talk about how people can get involved in this okay, project. Okay, great. Okay. So um, for people listening out there, this is something that can come down to the individual level. Um, it, it's something that we can talk about at our chapter meetings, uh, but we better hurry up. Um, can, we can't put it off till April. <laughs> when, that would be really tragic. <laughs> we, we we might want to have sort of an emergency uh, conference call if our chapter meeting isn't due till April or our yeah. affiliate meeting or whatever, yeah. and the contributions don't have to be large. 
They don't. Um, but you know, we a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars would right. be great. And we we sort of since you we talked on Monday, uh, a couple of us have talked about at our um, Friday roundabouts that we have here in Louisville each week, uh -huh. maybe just giving people the opportunity to contribute a small amount of money. And we keep up with those. It's important to keep up with the names. This yeah. time you don't want one anonymous contribution from 50 people, you know, one yeah. large, con you'd rather have right. the 50 small contributions yeah. because that demonstrates much more, uh, much broader community support. Yes. So and if you have support from across the nation. Right. That would be really great. Right. This is not a Kentucky project. It's not. It's no. Not. You know, we we are a national museum. Right. Uh, we try to serve the nation. Right. So people out there, no matter where you live, individuals could send in a few dollars. Um, groups could send in a few dollars, and if it's something like where you take up take up a collection, be sure and get those names, um, and send that list and the contribution. Now, tell us, how do we make this contribution? How do we do okay. this? I'm going to give you three ways. Okay. okay? Um, we have a link on um, the APH uh, website mm -hmm. um, to some more information about the book and, um, and a link that uh, allows you to make a donation online. You know, that's all the, okay. all the rage now, sure. fundraising. That, and that's a good, easy way to do it. Right. So that that's APH.org, and uh, if you go to APH.org, uh, there's a big banner at the very top of the page, and mm -hmm. you should be able to find that pretty easy. Okay. And that'll take you to some fundraising information. Okay. Or you can uh, make a gift by phone, mm -hmm. and I'm going to give you the phone number there. That's 888-295-2405. Okay. And all you need to do is say that you want to make a gift in support of uh, of the book. And they'll know what you're. They'll know what you're talking about. Eight 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 two nine five two four zero five. That's right. Okay. That's right. And then finally, if uh, you want some information about the whole the book, and or you want to talk to me, um, I'm going to give you my email address. Okay. Okay. My email address is m h u d s o n m hudson at aph.org. Okay. Well, Michael, this is this is really a fascinating project, and I appreciate so much you sharing it with us on Soundprints, and we look forward to a successful close of this month and meeting that goal and being able to have that book here at the American Printing House Museum. That would just be wonderful. So we wish you all the best and strongly, strongly, strongly encourage people to get involved in this Thank in you, this Carla, very much. You've, you've been a great help, a great supporter of us, and, and I appreciate all you've done for us uh, over the years. Find books and more in accessible media with APH's free-of-charge Louis database. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Locate accessible educational materials from nearly 200 different agencies. APH products and textbooks can also be located using Louis. New extended searching now available with free Louis Plus. Visit soon. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Many book materials help Braille users jot notes quickly. 
Pull APH's minibook Braille binder out of your pocket and begin to write on the minibook slate in just seconds. Materials are sold separately so that you can choose the combination that's right for you. Call the American Printing House for the Blind, toll-free, 800-223-1839, or visit www.aph.org. Page 4. Those of you who are subscribed to the ACBL email list know that at the end of this past week, there was an interesting article and press release posted that was entitled, Forget Driverless Cars. Someone made an autonomous personal transportation drone. The concepts included in this article and press release are so unique that we thought that all of our listeners would enjoy hearing about it and that it would spark some discussion. Here is the press release. Entitled EHANG, E-H-A-N-G, launches first ever autonomous aerial vehicle, EHANG 184 at CES. Groundbreaking vehicle marks a new chapter in transportation. Initial design, showcased at CES. EHANG, a Chinese unmanned aerial vehicle, UAV company, unveiled at CES, the EHANG 184, the world's first electric personal autonomous aerial vehicle, AAV, that will achieve humanity's long-time dream of easy, everyday flight for short to medium distances. Developed independently by EHANG, the fully ready-to-fly AAV is a manned drone capable of automatically carrying a passenger through the air simply by entering a destination into its accompanying smartphone app. Due to the 184's fully automated navigation, made possible by eHang's 24-7 in Real Flight Command Center, passengers have no need for a pilot's license. They simply sit back and let the drone take over from there. This first realization of automated flight signifies a major turning point, not only for the transportation industry, but also for a huge swath of other fields, such as shipping, medical care, and retail. Quote, It's been a lifetime goal of mine to make a flight faster, easier, and more convenient than ever. The 184 provides a viable solution to the many challenges the transportation industry faces in a safe and energy-efficient way said Ehang CEO Wazi Hu, H-U-A-Z-H-I-H-U. I truly believe that Ehang will make a global impact across dozens of industries beyond personal travel. The 184 is evocative of a future we've always dreamed of and is primed to alter the very fundamentals of the way we get around, end quote. The Ehang 184, which was named for one passenger, eight propellers, and four arms, is the next wave of innovation from Ehang. Having already released a successful consumer product with their Ghost Drone line, Ehang is now creating another disruptive and innovative technology to propel us towards the future of solo human transport. Significant features include absolute safety by design, 
automated flight eliminates the most dangerous part of standard modes of transportation, human error. The EHANG 184 has built-in reinforcements for all flight systems so that in the unlikely event that a component does fail, multiple backups are already in place to seamlessly take over. EHANG's independently developed fail-safe system ensures that if any components malfunction or if there's damage while the AAV is in flight, i.e. from a bird, the aircraft will immediately begin taking the necessary precautions to ensure safety. The 184's fail-safe system automatically evaluates the damage and determines whether the AAV will need to land to ensure its passenger safety. The EHANG-184 AAV flight control systems have multiple sets of sensors that provide the drone a constant stream of real-time data. The 184's communication system was also designed with a safety guarantee. Every system is encrypted and each AAV comes with an independent key. In the event of an emergency, passengers can elect to halt flight and simply hover in the air with just one click. Automation The 184 uses multiple independent flight control systems to automatically navigate passengers from point A to point B. These systems combine real-time data collected from sensors throughout the flight and automatically plot the fastest and safest route to carry passengers to their destinations. Remedy for Aging Transportation Industry The EHANG-184 AAV takes off and lands vertically, subsequently eliminating the need for runways. Its foldable design solves the logistical and spatial issues that have constrained airplanes and other modes of air travel from expanding into daily use. Mass adoption of the 184 has the potential to streamline congested traffic and dramatically reduce the kinds of accidents associated with any human-operated vehicle. The Power of Electricity The 184 is 100% electrical and doesn't depend on fossil fuels, reducing our reliance on substances that can be environmentally damaging. Sync Flight Management Platform EHANG is also building an advanced low-altitude flight command center which will be in constant contact with all of its flying vehicles. While the 184 is able to fly during thunderstorms and other extreme weather conditions, the command center can prohibit the AAV from taking off as a precaution. Drone Specs and Passenger Experience Standing 1.5 meters tall and weighing 200 kilograms, 440 pounds, the EHANG-184 AAV has a load capacity of 100 kilograms, 220 pounds, with the maximum output of 106 watts powered by eight motors. It's designed to have the capability to carry a single passenger for 23 minutes duration flight at sea level at average cruising speed of 100 kilometers per hour. The EHANG-184 AAV body consists of a cabin for single passenger with a gull wing door, a trunk, and the power system composed of four arms and eight propellers on the bottom.
The four arms, when folded, allow the AAV to occupy the same size parking space as consumer cars. Inside the cabin is placed a single seat with a design similar to an F1 racing car seat. In front of the seat is a tablet console through which passengers can easily input commands. Additionally, the cabin's built-in air conditioner automatically adjusts the in-cabin temperature. Complete with 4G Wi-Fi internet, eHang 184 provides passengers with comfortable and enjoyable riding experiences. This first glimpse of the eHang 184 offers just a small sense of its massive potential, even beyond transporting passengers. It promises limitless possibilities and will undoubtedly impact the way we all travel in profound ways. Page 5. The Sound Prince Calendar. On January 14, join the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind at 7 p.m. by conference call 605-475-4700 and enter code 155619. On January 15, GLCB will hold a roundabout at United Crescent Hill Ministries at the normal time, 3.30 to 5 for education and technology, discussion from 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, and games and crafts from 7 to 10. Dinner is $5 per person. On January 16, GLCB will have a dine-out from 2 to 4.30 p.m. at the IHOP at 1220 Veterans Parkway in Clarksville, Indiana. Call us to make reservations at 502-895-4598. January 17 is the next KSB Alumni Board Meeting at 8 p.m. And on January 18 is the next KCB Board Meeting at 8 p.m. And they are both on the conference line at 605-475-6006, code 294444. On January 19, the Tri-State Library users will hold an in-person dinner meeting from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. This will include chapter elections and will be at Logan's Roadhouse, 5005 Shelbyville Road in Louisville. Call 502-895-4598 to let us know you'll be attending. On January 22, the Statewide Rehabilitation Council, SRC, will meet at the Charles McDowell Center from 9.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. The McDowell Center is 8412 Westport Road in Louisville. Contact Jennifer Wright at 502-564-4754. On January 22 is also a GLCB roundabout, and this time it will include bingo and pizza. 3.30 to 6, Education and Technology and Discussion. 6 p.m. will be Pizza and Games, Crafts, and Bingo from 7 to 10 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 State Street in Louisville. January 22 and 23 is the NCASB Wrestling and Cheerleading Conference Championships. They are hosted by the Kentucky School for the Blind and will be at 1867 Frankfurt Avenue in Louisville. Call Kyle Sosha, Athletic Director at the school at 502-897-1583 for more details. On January 23, the APH Museum presents Helen Keller, This is Your Life, from 1 to 3 p.m. 
Meet the woman who forever changed the world for people with disabilities. As we recreate the set of the famous 1950s television show, you'll learn the story of Helen's life beyond the famous incident at the water pump. It's at the APH Museum, 1839 Frankfurt Avenue in Louisville. Reservations are required. Call 502-899-2213. On January 24, ACB Families invites everyone to participate in our 2016 Tax Tips Teleconference. It's at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. By phone, you'll learn tax tips for people with disabilities, and it's open to all. The number is 605-475-6333, enter code 1711553. On January 25, Guide Dog Users of Kentucky have their next membership conference call at 7 p.m. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On January 27, the Bluegrass Council will have their peer support group meeting for the month. It's from 12 noon to 2 p.m. And the speaker is Jenny Ward, Independent Living Coordinator for the Kentucky Office for the Blind. It will be at the BCB office. Call them at 859-259-1834 for more information. And on January 29 is the last GLCB roundabout for January, 3.30 to 6 p.m. for Education and Technology. Dinner, $5 per person at 6.15. Cards and Crafts, 7 to 10 at United Crescent Hill Ministries. Call for information at 502-895-4598. Looking forward to the months ahead, here are some other important dates. The quarterly meeting of the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind is planned for Friday, February 5, as part of the roundabout. We will have our spaghetti dinner, which has become a tradition for the winter quarterly meeting, plus a program, meeting, bargain table, and other limited roundabout activities. More details will be coming soon. The ACB mid-year meetings are scheduled for February 27 through March 1 in Virginia, and pre-registration is now open on the ACB website. The ACB board meets on February 27, ACB affiliate presidents meet on February 28, the legislative seminar is February 29, and the Capitol Hill visit is March 1. You don't have to be an affiliate president to attend. Everyone is welcome. To learn more, visit the ACB website at www.acb.org. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind is planning another great derby party on May 7, Derby Day, of course. Come early, stay late, and enjoy lots of food and games all day. A great way to celebrate a spring tradition in Louisville. The Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association annual reunion is tentatively set for the weekend of June 10 and 11. Please note that this is the second weekend in June, a week later than usual. It will once again be held at the Ramada Inn North in Louisville. More details to come. And finally, many people are beginning to ask about convention dates for this summer's 54th annual ACB Conference and Convention in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dates are July 1 through 9, with the first Friday, July 1, and the last Saturday, July 9, featuring some great tours. Exhibits will be open from Saturday, July 2 through Wednesday, July 6. Meetings, workshops, tours, and many other great events are scheduled from Saturday, July 2 through Friday, July 8. You don't have to attend the entire week of the convention. You can come for the days that best fit your schedule. 
Pre-registration will open in late May. Watch upcoming issues of the ACB Braille Forum and the eForum for more details. Also, you may wish to subscribe to the ACB Convention email list to have up-to-date information delivered right to your inbox. Visit www.acb.org and follow the link to the email list to subscribe. Also, you will find that you can already make your hotel reservations from www.acb.org by following the 2016 convention links. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.